Amen. Amen. Today we're going to talk about growing into next generation disciples. Y'all want to grow into next generation disciples? Amen. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go ahead and let's pray. You could be seated. Father, as we are sitting and preparing our hearts and minds, Lord God, we are dependent upon you. Father, uh, it is good that our hearts be strengthened by grace. I pray today, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable unto you, my Lord, my rock, my redeemer, my God in whom I trust, the God in whom we take refuge. Father, I thank you that you use vessels, Lord God, broken vessels, Lord, cracked vessels, Lord God, and you infuse us with the powerful grace of Christ. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being here, for indwelling us, and in being present, Lord God, that you might speak into our brokenness. You might bring uh, good fruit where there once was thorns and thistles. Uproot things through your word in our heart, Lord God, that would hinder us from knowing you and making Jesus known. Father, we ask for your blessing for fruitfulness, for without your blessing, God, fruitfulness cannot happen, but you promise that as your word goes forth, it will accomplish exactly as Isaiah says, what it intended to accomplish. And so, Father, bless this time, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I want to start with a couple, reading from a couple sections. As you guys know, uh, we're getting ready to celebrate Dr. King um, and his legacy on Monday. And this text that the Lord led me to talks about leaders. And I want to give you a snapshot of some leaders that have gone through in the past and some that still live today as we talk about this. Um, John Perkins, if you guys know John Perkins, um, he's been at it for the glory of Jesus even during the whole civil rights era and is still doing incredible work today. And he says something. I, I want to expose and share some stories, if I can, from men and women who endured difficulty and what happened. So John, Dr. Perkins, John Perkins comes up and um, he's in Mendenhall, Mississippi, answering the call from God. He could have stayed in California. He was in Pasadena. It was good, but the Lord made it really clear, I want you to go back to Mendenhall because there's a mission there that I want you to do in that little town of Mendenhall, Mississippi. So he goes back, and he has two, during their time in their ministry out there, he has two, he has a whole bunch of volunteers that come forth that are marching and doing community ministry they're driving in their vans. They get, they get pulled over, get thrown into the prison by the cops unjustly, and they ultimately uh, are beaten unjustly. Here's what he says. It got worse as the night wore on. This is, this is uh, Perkins speaking here. One officer brought a fork over to me and said, do you see this? And he jammed it up my nose and he crammed it down my throat. Then they beat me to the ground again and, and stomped me. This is in the 70s. Because I was unconscious a lot of the time, I don't remember a whole lot about the others. I do know that Doug and some of the students were beaten and that Curry probably suffered the most of any of us. And I remember their faces, the faces of those that were beating them, so twisted with hate. It was like looking at white-faced demons. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to those people. These policemen were poor. They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. The racism made them feel like, quote, unquote, somebody. When I saw that, I, I just couldn't hit back. 
I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you will let me get out of this jail alive, and I really don't think I would, maybe I was trying to bargain with him. With him, uh, Perkins says, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Well, although the students who watched over me through the night in that jail cell were sure for a while that I was dead or about to die, I came out alive and with a new call. My call to preach the gospel now extended to, to whites. That night in the Brandon Jail in Mississippi, I had for the first time seen how the white man was victim of his own racism. For the first time, I wanted to bring him a gospel that could set him free. What does that to a man? What does that to a man? An another man by the name of William Wilberforce, you guys are familiar with him, stood up in Parliament and said as enough as enough in Britain with the slave trade. Stands up and, 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 and he, mind you, he didn't know Christ early on. When he did, his perspective on life was radically changed. And here's what he says, if to be feeling alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic, I'm one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. That's a man who stood in there until it was abolished. But you know both Dr. Perkins and Wilberforce all faced continual persecution and pain threats of their lives, what are you doing? You're going against the economy. You're going against, you're, you're fighting our greed. You're, you're doing things that most people wouldn't want to do and shouldn't do. Richard Wormbrandt, who was a pastor back when in, 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 the, in, the, in the Soviet era, he says this in his book, Torture for Christ, if you've read that before. He says, I tremble because of the sufferings of those persecuted in diff different lands. I tremble thinking about the eternal destiny of their tortures. Mind you, he got tortured for being in prison, uh, for preaching the gospel. He got tortured in prison. I tremble for Western Christians who don't help the persecuted brethren, not just overseas, but locally, as we see. In the depth of my heart, I would like to keep the beauty of my own vineyard and not be involved in such a huge fight. I would like so much to be somewhere in quietness and rest. But it is not possible. The quietness and rest for which I long would be an escape from reality and dangerous for my soul. The West sleeps and must be awakened to see the plight of the captive nations. You see, with these three men, and the list goes on, I could have just, I could have gone through so many different leaders. The commonality of these three men is that they had something driving them so much that in the midst and the face of intense persecution, they hung in there and they endured. That's crazy to me. Like what, what was going on in their life where that happened? And, and yet sometimes, here's what happens. We have phenomenal leaders that, that fully say, I wanna, I'm yours, Jesus. And God does incredible things. And then some time passes by and we start thinking, man, I'm going through hardship. But we forget what drove them we forget what drove them and this is what was going on in hebrews in the book of hebrews you chase the story about people um people basically to put it short they came to christ 
They were kicked out of businesses because they say, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why are you following him? He was crucified on a cross, which is the cursed thing. He's not the Messiah. You're foolish for doing this. It's a stumbling block. Like, all these kind of things. So they lose out on the comforts of society when they trust Christ. And so it's rugged at the beginning of that church. It is extremely rugged. But the author of Hebrews comes in and he says, you know what? Let me give you some reasons and the motivation into why and how you endure through this. So he walks through chapter 1 through 12 and he says, Jesus basically is better than everything that you thought would make you right with God. Jesus is the fulfillment of it and he's greater than it all. All right? He even gets to the point in chapter 11 where he lays out all these men and women who've walked by faith. Then he gets in chapter 12. He says, well, considering them and their life of faith, consider what God does. Right? So he gets into that, and he says, in light of that, lay aside the things that you think are going to get it. Right? Then he goes down. He says, you know, I know you're struggling with sin, but you haven't struggled with the sin to the point of shedding blood. So he goes on later on in 12, and he says, that's why God is disciplining you. He loves you. So when it's a sin issue, he says he's disciplining you, not out of wrath, but out of love. And so he's going through and saying, lift up your countenance because of who Jesus is. Then he gets to verse chapter 13. He gets real practical. Here's what he says. He says things like this. Uh, Show love, hospitality, visit brothers and sisters in prison and mistreated, the value, he says, the value of marriage and God's serious disposition towards marriage and sexual purity. He says, keep our lives free from the love of money, but finding greater satisfaction in the fact that Christ is sufficient and will never leave us nor forsake us. He goes down to verse 7. This is where we pick up today. In verse 7, he begins to introduce this idea of leaders. Now, in this context, he gets very practical, and he says, in verse 7, he's talking about the leaders that were there to help plant the church, most likely. All right, so they're there, they see Jesus, they're enduring, and they're seeing stuff happening. All right, then you go down to verse 17, and he talks about a different group of leaders, a different set of leaders. All right, now those leaders right there were specifically the present-day elders and pastors, all right? In between that first generation of leaders and the other leaders, you have a whole section devoted to say, now, how do you, church, grow to be a next generation of disciples that endure through the difficulty? That's our context. So he goes in, verse 7, here's, here's what he says. Our first point of this is, Next generation leaders value leadership without idolizing it. Next generation leaders value leadership without idolizing it. All right, here's what he says, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, so he gets and he says, I know that you guys are struggling with enduring. You're having difficulty. He says, but here's one way you need to remember. Make sure you remember your leaders who what? Spoke the word of God to you. Now, in that remembering, that word hints at the idea of don't stop remembering because we're forgetful. 
don't stop remembering. But he doesn't say just to remember them for the sake of remembering them. That word also hints at remember and respond to the admonitions they gave you. What? Based on the word of God that they spoke to you. Come back. Remember those leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Respond to their admonition. That's what he says first. But he continues and he says, so consider them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So he says, consider. That idea is the same. Continue to consider. Don't stop considering. Now what this considering is, he says, observe attentive, attentively, carefully, and accurately. Take the leaders that you saw that their life and look at how the fruit of God was manifested in their suffering. Watch them. How did they respond, emerging disciples? How did they respond when persecution came their way? Did they retaliate in a way that was, okay, an eye for an eye? Or was there something about the grace of God that gripped them? How did they respond when those things of life happened that, got, that irked them? He says, pay attention. And then also, pay attention to how God moved in them. Continue to watch them. Not for the sake of criticizing, but for the sake of learning. For the sake of learning. How did God bear fruit in their life? What was happening in their life? Many of these scholars will, some will say some were martyred, some will say they weren't. But I think there's present to say in the time, many of their leaders, the outcome of their life was martyrdom. In other words, they died for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to endure what Dr. Perkins did and getting beaten in Mississippi. Because he saw something, I gotta preach the gospel to a messed up world. So there was something about that, that that many died in faith, as Hebrews 11 says, they endured to the end. He says, watch their life. How is it that they endured? Pay attention. Don't just look at the outcome only. Look at, consider how the outcome came about, the totality of their life and what the Lord did. All right? So those are some, those are some of the things there. Now, it's important to pin uh, also in Hebrews 11 because all of those, he laid out a litany of people from, from the beginning of the scriptures of creation to all the way to that point of men and women who had endured by faith. Many of them saw the blessing, right? They experienced blessing, victory, conquest. Others were crucified, were tortured and, and killed and destroyed because they stood for Christ. So you, you have a tracing, a litany of saying, but here's the thing, he tells them. These people did not see the promise. The promise was the Messiah. They greeted it from afar. You talk about faith. They didn't even see. The Messiah hadn't come yet, and they greeted Messiah from afar. He says, you've seen Messiah. You, you haven't physically because you're a next generation, but look at those who did and encountered, and, and that is so important. But he says, make sure you don't stop at verse 7. If you stop at, at looking at that, he says, make sure you need to not just consider, but you need to imitate their faith. That imitate is a continual imitate. Notice he did not say imitate the conduct. He didn't say imitate how how they did this how they that's important and paul talks about that but for their context he says imitate their faith 
imitate their faith. There was something that they knew that gave them the grace to endure through difficulties in light of the greater reward. So he says, imitate their faith. Don't stop at verse 7, because if you do, you will, idolat- you will idolize those leaders. In other words, you will venerate them in such a way where you will say, man, they're super spiritual. I could never do that. He says, no, I want you to consider their faith because their faith points to the faithfulness of God in Christ. Then he goes in verse 8. This is what he says. Don't stop and idolize them. Watch with the purpose of seeing God's faithfulness. Because then he says, look, verse 8, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The same Jesus who rose from the dead, who by the power of the Spirit transformed, utterly transformed their lives, is the same Jesus that is at work today in you, next generation disciples. The same Jesus is at work in you. Don't forget that. That is incredibly important. And that's where he says we come back to the word of God. We remember how he showed his faithfulness off. And we come to the fact that Jesus is the same. He doesn't change. Jesus, this is the doctrine of the immutability of Christ. Jesus does not change. Your circumstances may and will change. But Jesus Christ does not change. We may know that theologically, but practically when when all all hell breaks loose, what's our response? That's when we begin to know. And that's when we got to say, man, I'm in need of endurance. I need to come back. I need to remember what's going on, what, what God has done through the life of leaders. I think many of us have been influenced by culture where we, we venerate leaders and we kind of put them so distant that we don't know, we, we don't even know how. It's kind of like everybody wants to be like the big, you know, mega church pastor or the superstar, but we have no clue of what it took to get there and the grace it is to sustain when, you, when God puts you in a place you know, that, that you're all over the place, right? But you're focused, and Christ is using you. We don't know what it took. And so what will happen sometimes is, um, is we end up venerating them, but they're so distant that we're like, I can never do that. And then all I end up doing is like, well, I'm, I'm, I just go to work. I just come to Sunday on gatherings. I mean, I don't really have anything to offer, so I'm not going to serve anywhere. And then pretty soon before you know it, you end up staying at home, you know, Bedside Baptist Pentecostal pillow where you're listening to a podcast. You know what I'm saying? And you're just there. And because you're like, I don't really have anything to offer. He's like, look, keep your head up because Jesus is the same. He's at work. And so he wants to remind him of that. Others, here's, here's another thing is, is when your life, you gotta have, you got to have men and women that you can look to. And you can look at their life. You, if you haven't been discipled, you need to be discipled. Get up in all the different avenues. Go to one of the older men, older women, and say, man, can, can y'all help me think through this stuff? You need someone who you can look at and, and watch the hand of God in their life. Because sometimes you need a tangible expression of God's faithfulness. Do you hear me? You need a tangible expression of God's faithfulness. Because life gets difficult sometimes, doesn't it? So that's what, there's this remember, here's a tangible expression of God's goodness. Others of us have had horrible leadership, leadership in the past. We've been hurt by leadership. We've been abused by leadership. And we, we, we don't even know what to do. And what's happening, without even knowing it, that has tainted your understanding of Jesus. 
That's why you're having a hard time trusting again. Because you think you're cool with trusting Jesus, but really you, you have a hard time trusting him. Because you've had a bad leadership experience. I'm not just talking about in the church, unfortunately, and God have mercy on us, all right? Like, in, in whether, whether you've come in from unhealthy, whatever it might be, we, it, it's also in the home. If you've had a bad leadership encounter with a father, with an absentee father, right? With a father who beats you, with, with a family member who did something that they weren't supposed to, they stewarded their authority in a bad, improper, ungodly way. And you cannot get the, your mind around the idea of trusting Jesus because there's still a pain there that it's like that, that you're, you don't want to let Jesus heal. And so that's something that's so important for us is that today, as we look at remembering, if you don't have a leader that you can look to and evaluate and for the sake of growing, come with me to Psalm 23. And won't you today look to the shepherd, let the good shepherd who ultimately will hold all accountable, he will hold all leadership accountable to what they teach and how they steward their authority. He will vindicate justice in a full way one day. But let him lead you through this valley of the shadow of death. Some of you right now are experiencing, I can't even think of the faithfulness of God because I've had such a horrible people leading me in the past and it hurts and I'm in pain and I don't know what to do. Let the good shepherd say, come, let him, let him shepherd you through the valley of the shadow of death. Let him refresh your soul in the streams of living water by, the, by these pastures that he leads you to lie in. There, there is something that he does in your soul, even in the midst of deep pain in our life. He doesn't always take us out of it. But what he does is he promises, Psalm 4 says, I will give you relief. Let the good shepherd shepherd you today. Let him shepherd you. Verse 9 through 14, the second thing is not only do we see the significance right, of, of valuing leaders but not idolizing them, but also the growing, uh, the next generation disciple values the grace of Christ above all else. Values the grace of Christ above all else. Verse 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. That word, do not be led astray or led away, hints at the fact that once these things grab you, they carry you away from the foundational truths. We can be carried away by strange and diverse teachings. I love that strange word, just weird stuff that makes absolute no sense. But for some reason, there are times in a life when we get carried away by it. So he says, don't be led away from that stuff. But he says, you know, there are times. So when are we prone to get away from this stuff? And this is what's interesting in chapter 10 of Hebrews. He goes and he says, don't neglect the gathering or the fellowship of the believers. Right? For some who have done that have ended up in destruction. Right? That hints at the fact that if they weren't going to the gathering believers, that meant that they're going to get persecuted so they didn't go. So there's something they didn't fully give themselves to Jesus fully. 
right? They, they didn't see the worth of Jesus enough for the sake of what these men that I talked about to endure through difficulty. Rather, they said, it might be good, as, as Warren Brett said, just to have a nice, quiet, let me add Jesus to my life, and I'm cool. I'm going to live a nice, comfortable, safe life. He says, so what happens at times is we, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the isolation kicks in, right? And I, I can be kind of podcast ministry, and I don't need to go to gatherings. I really don't need to be a part of a life group. Now, these aren't, I'm not saying legalism, like, hey, be this, because this, this like, makes you more righteous with God. No, they're means of grace of growth that Christ set up in his church to, be, to, to do and to be about. And so he says, he said, we get in the point, like, I don't need to be around that stuff. I, I really don't need it right now. And so what happens is we distance ourselves from leadership that teaches the word of God, and we distance ourselves from community. So then what replaces that is the podcast ministry. And if you only do podcast ministry, all you get is the intellectual acumen, right? And you get that happening, but you're so distanced that you really can't remember the leaders, you don't see the faithfulness of God in difficult times because all you hear is the, is the good preaching, but you don't see the, the craziness that leaders go through every single day that says it's but for the grace of God that I endure. It's but for the grace of God that I love when you're spit on and when you're, when you're beaten and when you're slandered and when you're maligned and all this kind of stuff. It's the love of God that graces, but if you're distant, you're prone to be carried away to say, I don't need that. I can do my own thing, right? So you're more prone, we're more prone when we do that. And he goes on and says, so what are these teachings and what are some of these strange and diverse teachings? He goes, they're, they're foods, one of them is food. You guys are like, what are you talking about? Like, food is good, right? How is that a doctrine? Well, here's what was going on. He says, such foods were ceremonial foods that promised spiritual strengthening apart from God's grace found in Christ. So in other words, participants, to set it up, you had the, the tabernacle, right, turned into the temple, right? The tabernacle is where you had the sacrifices that God said, set this up so it cleanses, it, it covers sin until I come to the one who's going to fulfill this, the blood and going to ultimately do it. He says, set this up right here and offer your sacrifices, all right? So, so that's what he's doing there. And he says, so people celebrated these special cultic meals, partic particularly the fellowship meal, as a means of communicating the grace of God. These meals involved the blessing of God, thanks for his grace, and prayers of request. They were understood, according to Psalm 105, to give spiritual strength. Now, all that Psalm 104.15 says, it, gives, it, it strengthens the heart. In other words, you're tired, and you eat something, and it strengthens you. And you're thanks, you give thanks to the Lord, and he does something. You know, food, when you broke the fast, it did something for you, right? For y'all who are honest, it did something for me. I was loving <laughs> me that meal on Friday. But... But some of the Jews of Diaspora Judaism, moreover, they celebrated special fellowship meals in an attempt to imitate the cultic meals of the temple. So in other words, they would have these meals to imitate the meals that were going on at the temple or the tabernacle. And those meals, they said, if I eat this, it'll make me somehow impart ceremonial cleanliness and make me more right with God. All right? So he says, that's what's going on there is that these foods right, were, were happening. And, and Jesus, if you go, 
if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus speaks to these foods, right? These strange teachings that say, hey, if you just wash yourself or if you do a certain amount of things and, you know, bow down and, and, and pray a certain amount of days and you put a certain thing on you and all this, all this kind of stuff, then, then you're clean and you're going to be right with God and you can approach God. He says, man, those are strange teachings. Why? Here's what Jesus says. In Matthew 15, 10, he says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, people. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. All right? That stuff is perishable. It's going to go in your mouth and come out, and you're going to get it out, and it ain't going to do nothing unless you eat something crazy, right? Physically, it messes us up. But spiritually, it has no value. It has no power. But what comes out of the mouth, that defiles a person. So he says, y'all can eat this, and you can clean your hands and do all these ceremonies all day. But if you don't get the fact that what actually defiles you is what's coming from your heart, you're missing what really needs to happen in your cleansing. All right? So, they, so he says, look, don't go for those because those foods, they, they don't have any kind of thing that you need. So, so why, why, why not be drawn away by these teachings? Well, he goes on in Hebrews. He goes and he says, well, these foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. One, the foods don't even benefit the people they devoted it to. That food does not impart a new heart to them. That food does not change their heart that will change their attitude, conduct, actions. The food and these strange teachings that we sometimes fall prey to when we get too distant and we fall into pragmatism. I forgot what the deep core is, so I'm going to move to pragmatism. I'm going to try to make what works today. I'm going to fit it in, and I'm going to see how do I make it work to make me okay, to make me right with God, to make me feel satisfied, to make me to try to get my best life today, to make me try to do all this kind of stuff. He says, remember your leaders. Go back. To remember and see. Because these things, these strange teachings don't change you. Not at all. And so then he goes, but here's another thing. It's a, for, for us, just because you're devoted to something doesn't mean it's true and right. Just because you're devoted to something. In this subjectivism culture that says, I do me, I create truth. There is no truth. Just because you're devoted to it doesn't mean it's right. And we have to, we as the people of God can be so stubborn in things that are not the gospel. We get so hardened and we're like this. And we also, like we live in this idealistic world out here that we're trying to create what things should be and what it isn't. He said, no, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Endure through because there's nothing else. Endure through this challenge because I'm the only one, Jesus reminds us. But they don't even, they, they don't even benefit. So you could be devoted to it, and someone could come up to you and say, man, what you're doing, the path you're on, is not wise. It's going to end up in destruction. And you're like, nah, I, I know what I'm doing. I got it. I got it. I'm going to do what I do, right? And, and it's kind of like, okay. But just because you're devoted to it doesn't mean it's going to be beneficial. And that's what, that's what he's reminding them is that these guys are devoted to it, but it's not doing anything. Rather, he says, look, here's another reason why we don't go to him. It's, it's good, in verse 9, for the heart to be strengthened by grace. 
your heart cannot be strengthened by these strange teachings. Your heart can only be strengthened by the grace of God. And that word strengthen, it's interesting. It means to establish in belief, to increase our inner strength, implying greater firmness of character. To establish in belief, to increase our inner strength. Foods cannot do that spiritually and long-lasting. Right? They just don't do that. And so he says, you got to be, it's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace. The very, the very heart, what, what started and sparked your salvation is you were saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. God decided to fix, fix his affection on us jacked up, broken human beings. And he did what was necessary and needed to secure our eternal redemption to, to forgive us and to cleanse us. And he says, that very grace, don't forget that that's the grace that actually will continue to keep you and strengthen you. Don't go away from it and thinking, now that I got this made, I can do it. Here, here's an example. Um, can I be real with y'all? All right, talk back to me. Thank you. <laughs> I know it's dreary outside. I, I remember uh, my own wrestles. In, in, uh, so I grew up, mom and dad, Taught me the grace of God, didn't see it, the depths of what, what the Lord's been showing. And so I remember going through this time, I had a kidney transplant, I was a third boy. I, my parents loved the mess out of me, dad gave me a kidney, all, like just incredible stuff. But I was still inside trying to say, I got to prove myself. I got to make myself known. I got to create something in, for me and to maintain my image. So what I began to do is I began to look at and, and find where are these images that I can create to make me somebody. You tracking? So I get involved in, in, in my undergrad. Um, I had diverse friends growing up, all this kind of stuff, and I can share the full story of it, of it later on. But when I got to undergrad, the Lord allowed me to be a part of starting the impact chapter in my undergrad. It was the African-American ministry of crew that partners with crew. And so in that experience, from that point on, from 2002 on, my, most of my life, church-wise and a lot of life-wise, was around the black community. So I get comments over time like, you ain't really white, you're really black, right? And after a while, I'm like, oh, maybe that's who I am. <laughs> Come on, I know y'all laughing. But, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, maybe that's the identity that I can assume. Do, do you feel me? So we get into this point where we're like, but, and I'm like, man, like, and I, so I began to form my identity around one of a few white guys that was just had family, community, and doing ministry in the black community. I know it's weird, but I'm, I'm weird, and I need Jesus, all right? So, but what would happen is that, here's what happened, is I was like, okay, cool, like, I'm feeling good about myself, right? Like, this and that, and I had, but deep down what was happening, I remember my wife, I met her first in L.A., and then a mentor of mine who'd done, like, he's African-American psychologist who'd done mentoring in cross-cultural stuff for 20 years. He began to, to really get at me. And then my boy, uh, one of the close friends in, in L.A., through those three people, God began to bring up stuff in my life. And here's what he began to bring up. You're not accepting who you are. You're not accepting how I created you. You're not accepting what I've done for you. You're trying to create your own perception of who you need to be because you're trying to gain acceptance so doggone bad that you can't even see what I'm doing. You can't even see how I created you. And, and that, and it was those three and the community of Faithful Central Bible Church 
that in, in, Ingle, in Inglewood that just embraced the mess out of me. And they began to walk me through that. And I began to see, oh my gosh, this grace my parents were talking about. I experienced it in a brand new area. And I tried to create through strange teachings. I know y'all saying that's strange, right? I began to create that, and God began to heal me in the grace of God to say, where do I need to repent of things, but not letting guilt and shame define my life. And Christ began to do a work in that to deliver me by the grace of God. So I could say, today I am, I am by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. And that's what the grace of God does. And so here's a question. Where do you need to, be, need to be strengthened with grace? Where have you created a false image that you're trying to gain acceptance so bad? You're trying to figure out who you are so bad that you can't even hear the voice of the good shepherd. Where is that in your life? What area have you said? Is it a relationship? If I leave this relationship, I'm a nobody. Is it a career? If I, if I move and transition, then I'm not going to be seen as an identity because I'm the first one in my family to get a degree, right? I'm going to do this, and you need to do that. The Lord's not calling you to something else. Stay where you are. But if he's calling you, go. Where is that? Maybe he's calling you to go to Malawi next year, and you're like scared to death. I don't know what to do. Maybe he's calling you. Whatever he's calling you to do, it's going to include being pricked. And what you can know, you can tell it's an issue when, like, I remember Fatima would say, oh, you're really white, dog. And I'm like, at first, I'm like, dang it. <laughs> I know y'all think that's strange, but you hear me. It is, it's a sense I knew who I was in some degree, but I couldn't embrace what God wanted to do in showing me grace. All right, so, so what that thing that when someone brings it up, it gets you frustrated, that's, what, that's usually going to be a strange teaching that you've begun to adopt. All right? So you want to be careful with that. Now, going on in that, someone got Sister Tanya? Okay. So in, in that's, let's go down now. He continues on 10 through 12. I'm just going to read this and summarize this. We talked a little bit on this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, remember the sacrificial system, um, as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In other words, this is hearkening back to Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement. What would happen is that the high priest would bring a, the blood, a bull and a goat together. The blood for his own covering of his sin and his family and the goat for this covering, covering the sin of the nation of Israel. Right, so he would bring in, sacrifice the blood. There would be a covering that would temporarily say, God's like, okay, all right, let's continue on. Right, so he would bring that covering and do that. But then those same two animals, were not, were, they weren't eat it, eaten by the priest. They were taken outside the camp, right, outside the camp to be burned. The person who led that bull and that goat out to the camp to be burned was considered unclean. They would have to go in, go through a ceremonial washing to be ceremonial clean, to be brought back into the fellowship of the camp. Now check this out. So he brings this up and he says, hey, look, the spiritual sacrifices, they happened here. 
But don't stop here because what was going on didn't change the heart. He says, rather, so Jesus then comes and he is sacrificed outside the camp. Where? The unclean area where you were, un, you were defiled if you went out there. Jesus comes in and th- enters into the muck and mire and junk of our life. So that what? We know the only way that he changes lives is through his blood and his blood alone. Because his blood enacts a better covenant, Hebrews says. Jeremiah 31, he says, one day I'm going to make another covenant. I'm going to write my law upon your heart. Ezekiel 36 says, one day I'm going to give y'all from your heart a stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so you can obey me. I'm going to pour my spirit upon you and give you a new spirit. So Jesus, through his blood, actually sanctifies us. Why? Because he fulfills the promises of God to come and give us a new heart. In the midst of our mess. See, so he has this, he did it out here to make sure that they knew what you wrapped your identity around is not added to the grace of God. It is by grace alone that the blood of Christ is shed for the forgiveness of sins and to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, to put us on track with what he wants us to do. And that's the beautiful thing about that. But not only that, then he says, okay. So Jesus was gathered there, and he says, so, in verse 13, so let us go out to him. What does that mean? Let us go outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. It was a disgrace to die on the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about that's foolishness to the Greeks. What king dies on the cross? That's for murderers. What king dies on that? For the Jews, it was a stumbling block. The cross, is a, it's a curse. Whoever dies on a tree should be cursed. And so they didn't know what to do. They bore a reproach. When Jesus was out there, he was mocked. He was, uh, he was, he was, he was re- all this kind of stuff, persecuted. He was sped on, unbelieved in, all these kind of things. So when he says, go out, he says, look, go out to the camp. What you thought gave you life. Don't try to mix it with Jesus anymore because it won't cleanse your heart. It doesn't give you the grace to endure. Rather, why don't you go out and go out where Jesus is? In other words, to go with Jesus is the only way that we have life. In fact, he says in verse 10, look in verse 10, he says, we have an altar that those of the old way can't eat from. They don't have a right to eat from it because they've rejected it. And because they still think that this way is going to do it. The altar that he's talking about is not this altar. The altar that he talked about is not the American dream that we fit into our American culture. The altar he talked about is not these things that we think can make us right and give us life and make us comfort. He says, instead, I'm calling you to go out with Jesus. Go all in. As we say in L.A., ride or die with Jesus. Don't mix him up with other stuff. It doesn't work. It will not give you. He says, so remember that. Let us go outside. And then he he sets them up and says, you know what? By us going outside where Jesus died, you will go through persecution. When you are standing up for the grace of God, I'm not talking about in a a non-godly way, right? But I'm talking about when you walk in integrity in your job. 
I'm talking about when you have to call a relationship quits because that you're, the person you're dating does not want Jesus at all. When you have to do that, you need to know the grace of Christ that's in your life, right, if you're in Christ. And that's what he begins to get at. He says, you will be disgraced. Man, they said Jesus was a fool for dying on the cross. We believe in something that outside of the Spirit of God opened our eyes. It's foolish. Our king died on a cross. He rose. We know he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But people have to know that by faith. Only the Spirit of God can open our eyes. But that's, the message is foolish, Paul says, to those that are perishing. But to those that have life, it's the greatest news ever. And so he says, go out and you will bear disgrace. And that's why the apostles said they rejoiced and counted it a blessing when they can rejoice and celebrate that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. So he says, come out of those things that you form your life around, find it in Jesus. Ride or die Jesus because he rode and died for us. And so in your life, what is the reproach for Christ? What is your reproach for Christ? Are you willing to look like a fool to walk with Christ? Are you trying to build your sexy resume to exalt yourself on social media, to exalt yourself on Facebook, to find an identity? I'm not saying, I mean, use those entities. But figuratively speaking, are we trying to exalt ourselves and do our own life? Or are we saying, you know what, my life is only found in Christ. And he's the only one that gives me the grace to endure. I will go through suffering. But then check this out. He says, here's motivation, verse 14. He says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. He says, you know what those things that you think that you can find life in? They, they're not going to last. Rather, I'm calling you. You're a part. If you're in Christ, you're a part of a citizen. You're a citizen of a kingdom that w- is coming, and it will not fail. In fact, that's why Hebrews 12 says, hey, there's a shaking that will happen. And what, what will remain will be of Christ. And his kingdom is sure. It will remain. It will last. Vindication is coming. Hope fully will be completely realized. We see it now, right? But we know that he's coming again. So he says, when you're struggling, know that this is not our permanent home. Don't think that you're going to build a mansion here. And I'm not talking, it's not bad, you know, build what you build in your houses. But make sure our hearts are with the Lord. I'm bringing that up as an illustration, is that you need to tent here. We need to, to throw our tents up and knowing that I can go wherever Jesus wants. Hey, Fatima and I didn't know we were going to L.A. in the summer. I, I'm like, I love it at Epiphany. I can stay in Philly our whole life. But when Jesus says go, you go. You go because we, he rode and died for us, and he, we have life in him. And I'm a part of a different kingdom. Man, my girls, they're... And we know this is part of my thing. Y'all know about this. One of these ideologies is a racialized structure today that says you've got to fit into a category in order to do that. My girls have no category in the United States. Many of y'all don't have any categories in the United States. Am I, am I black enough? Am I white enough? Am I Hispanic enough? How do I figure that? The language thing, what, what happens here? And we're trying to figure out our place. And the kingdom of God says, yo, ethnicity and and all the different diversity, that's part of God's plan to increase diversity, unified in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you've got a whole community that's rejoicing over the triune God who has unified diversity. So there's a sense of where, like, the kingdom to come, that's the one I'm a citizen of. 
Now, as a result of that, I steward my city well. And I want to see more and more people. I want the, 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 the church to imitate and to call the city to accountability to live out what the city is called to live out through the gospel. And so here's, the, finally, as we wrap up, when you encounter, when you encounter the grace of God, it says this is the only sufficient thing. Wrapping up here in verse 15 and 16, he says two sacrifices will flow from your life. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, when a sacrifice would happen, you would give thanks to God. All right? That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So in other words, what this is, is as Christians, it happened once on the altar of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. One and done, that sacrifice atoned and cleansed all of us. So every time we think about that, which should be often... We break out in celebration. He says, let us offer up. Come to be a people that are full of thanksgiving because you're reflecting upon the satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go every day to find your identity. It's already done in Christ. All right? So he says that is for us, when we encounter that, we become a worshiping community that celebrates Jesus. And finally says, then also, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Basically, as a community, when we experience the grace of God in Christ, we begin to look at ways that we can extend grace to others. And we begin to look at how can I serve this person? What does it look like to do that? And so we begin to look at that. And so my prayer is as we go through this time, we look, we understand the grace of Christ and we begin to grow as a community that is finding our identity in Jesus Christ. When we do that, the things that, those, those things that prick us, especially with everything with all that we have going on in the nation, it's like something happens and we get pricked. We need to say, hold up. What am I finding my identity in? And then we need to come together and have conversations of repentance, of confession, of enjoying the richness that we get to eat from an altar of a king who's coming again. And endure in persecution and, and, and endure with Christ because it's going to happen. And so let's, let's as, we, as we wrap up here, all um, eyes closed and heads, heads bowed.